Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2.5% of the most popular podcasts in the world, and it's all because of my truly incredible guests. Hang on just a second. I've been coughing all morning. I don't know if it's just the weather change or what's going on, but just bear with me. I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game, as my guest today is, and who are willing to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. And these are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with you the essence of peak performance in whatever industry that they're talking about. And today we're talking about avoiding pitfalls, from business transition to transaction with my guest, Lori Barkman. And she was here in September, not too long ago, and had so much to share that she has come back to continue the conversation. So growing a business requires preparing and planning for the future in order to make it transferable, unless you just plan on shutting it down and walking away. I don't think too many people plan on doing that, but you never know. And Lori is teaching entrepreneurs about making their business firm by helping them maximize enterprise value, creating succession plans, and identifying M&A strategies. Now, 80% of business owners do want to stop working in their business in the next five to 10 years, but most have not planned for that transition. Many, and she says this very firmly, many need to improve the business first. So, Lori, welcome back to your Partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Denise. Great to be with you. Thank you. And today I think we're going to be talking about transition pitfalls, and apparently there's a ton of them. And you're writing a book about this as well, too, so let's go. Tell us what you want to know. <laughs> Talk. Yeah, there's so much to talk about, and I really appreciate you having me back. We had such a great conversation in September, and we talked about a part two, and here we are. So if there's any listeners that have not yet heard that episode, that would be a great companion to today's show for sure. Um, As you mentioned in your introduction, I love to work with business owners and helping them have a successful transition. And as many of us know in our lives, transitions do not happen easily. And they should not happen randomly, right? We should have a plan for how we want our business to transition over time. And so what does transition mean in this context? It can mean a variety of things. It could mean a sale to a third party. It could mean having an ESOP or um, an employee ownership program. It could mean that you want to continue to grow and and have a sustainable business that continues to the next generation and you want to sell to family, you know, pass it down to family. Maybe you want to sell to management team. Maybe you want to sell to a strategic buyer. When I say a third party, it's really a range of people and companies or entities that you could sell it to. And just in that, you know, three, four sentences right there of what I just said could be an hour-long conversation. But transition in the big picture is about business transition, readiness for that transition, the business being ready for that transition, and you as the owner, maybe you're the founder, 
Maybe you're a next generation leader. You're not the founder. Maybe you're third generation, second generation. What's important to you? You know, this personal side, the emotional side of this transition. Transition and changes in life are not easy. You know, so we recognize that and we need to give it the space for us to do planning. And so many business owners don't take the time to work on what Stephen Covey calls the important but not urgent things. The classic example of we'll all answer the phone, but we're not going to carve out half an hour a day to think about our exit plan. And it's amazing. On my, on my show, I have a show called Succession Stories, and I talk with all the folks I mentioned, you know, founders, next-gen leaders. I also talk with uh, advisors who support business owners like accounting firms and wealth managers and law firms and specialists in different areas. And all of, all of us say the same thing, which is when time is on your side, that's the best time to get started. You know, people say, well, how long does the tough process take? And we may have talked about this, Denise, in the last episode, which is, well, where's the starting point? You know, if you want to lose weight and get in shape, do you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or do you look like someone who's on the TV show, you know, My 800-Pound Life? And so of where we're starting from really matters. And so part of this is, hey, you know, when time's on your side, when you're maybe – you know, I don't have to say that there's a fixed amount of time here, but like five years away, 10 years away from a transition, all the things that we're going to talk about today, today, Denise, are about running a more enjoyable business, a more profitable business. And all of those things just make economic sense. Why wouldn't we work on these things so that you can create options in the future? Well, you know, a lot of us are we have aging parents or we're getting a little bit older or we're worried about health. We're worried, you know, there's just so much going on these days and it has to do with who you are and how you show up in the world and that means how you show up in your business as well. And if you're not planning your funeral, if you're not planning your succession, whether it's personal, what you're going to do with, you know, the belongings that are in your house, stuffed in your garage, a lot of us will think about that, but we won't think of, oh, don't have time, which I think is kind of silly, to think about how we're going to transfer that thought process into our business because we're all going to leave. We're either going to leave because we died or because we just said, you know what, I'm going to Bora Bora, I'm done. But we have to make those plans and start thinking about it. But we don't want to. And and I think that's the biggest problem oh, I'll do it tomorrow I don't want to do that right now that's going to hurt and are you finding that with people are just saying I just don't have time I'm not in the mindset I'll do it later I have one potential client I've, I've met him two years ago almost and every time he responds to a message that I'll send him every once in a while you know I'm not a nudge or anything but I check in with him every once in a while he is gosh, at this point, probably 74, and he's still working in his business. And he keeps saying, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. And it makes me it makes me sad, honestly, for him because and his family, because I think one day, you know, we can kind of see how this might play out. Um, and he's just too busy. It's like, I don't know if you ever read the books, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> there was a character called the busy yeah. dachshund. That's how they interpreted oh, the uh, the sign of the sign above his door, the busy dachshund, which in English translates to busy back soon. And the busy dachshund character is, you know, look, somebody we can all relate to. We've all been there. We all do that. But 
at some point it does become too late. I'll share just sort of a sad story. Uh, about a, about a month ago, one of my clients did die, and his um, his widow contacted me, and it's sad, you know. And he was he was in his 60s, young 60s, and he started planning his transition. Obviously, very much too late. He died suddenly, and I don't think anyone sort of planned on that. But he did talk to me about what his desires were to continue his legacy if his son wanted to continue in the business, maybe acquire the business, that, of course, would have been great, and he would have preferred that, and if he was also open to a third-party sale. But there were things in the business that needed improvement for sure, and he just never he just never got a chance to work on those things, unfortunately. So what happened? I mean, if you don't mind sharing at least a broad outline, did his son take over? Were you able to help the the widow? What happened? Because I had a similar thing happen um, I, it's, with a it's web still, client. It's still playing out, so I'm not able to discuss because I actually don't know the answer to your questions. I think it's still playing out, Denise, um, in terms of the estate. But um, I, she asked me what his wishes were, and I went through all my notes. I had a lot of notes, and uh, that was my summary to her: is that it was his preference that his, you know, son, if the son wanted to to continue the business and keep it in the family. And, if, and then otherwise the, the next option would be to, to put it on the market. But if they were going to put it on the market, I think there were some improvements that would need to be made. And that's where he and I had sort of stopped and we, we hadn't continued on that path. So I honestly don't know where she's going to take it. My guess is that she will come up with an amicable um, resolution with, with, with the son. Well, at least she had you to go to. And like I said, I had a, a similar situation. I got a phone call from, turned out it was a widow, but she said, you know, my name is, and her name, and she said, my husband died yesterday. Went, oh. Yeah, he had been a good client. He was a web development client. He was the nicest man in the world. What I did not know is that he had a pervasive heart problem and had had it for a long time. It's just not something that we ever discussed and she was asking me kind of like your your client's widow did what did he want what did he want to do with all of this i don't know what to do you know she was never part of it and as it turned out i wound up creating a nonprofit website for the hospital where he passed in the hospital where he had done a lot of a lot of work in the hospital he was a musician he was a lot of things he was not a doctor but he did a lot of work in volunteering in this hospital. And I connected with the hospital and created a beautiful, it's still going, it's still going strong, nonprofit website. That's the only thing I could think to do because nobody really knew what he wanted. We had to just all kind of get together and say, well, we want to honor him. We want to honor the hospital. And and honestly, I, it was, I didn't charge for it. It was a nonprofit. And he was a client. There was no way I was going to charge for it. But, you yeah, know, I think it's you know we we we've given we've given lots of reasons why a business owner should start to do planning. Um, one of the things I wanted us if, to maybe talk about today, Denise, would be what some of these challenges are as you consider building value and exiting and exiting on your own terms is really the the piece that I want to underscore. And it's about having time to prepare 
and create these options. You know, being in option generation mode is a good thing because over time we might rule out certain options. And uh, you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, that I'm working on a book, and, it, and that's what this is about. It's about business transition pitfalls and, and to know what they are so that we can avoid them. And how do we create more valuable exit options? And, you know, this context of, hey, we can't control the future, right? Things can happen to us, but being prepared and having some contingencies in place can help you and your family with the wealth that you, you've worked so hard to create. You know, don't let it just go to the to the government or go into probate or or liquidate and, and then your family sees nothing. That would be a shame. And um, But, yeah, I, I'm happy to, to chat about some of these pitfalls if you'd like. Oh, yeah, please. I've got my pen. I've got my pad. I am scribbling down notes. <laughs> well, you said something earlier I want to come back to, which is 100% of business owners are going to leave their business one day, and that is very true, and fewer prepared. So if we start there and say, well, how do we prepare? What does this mean? I think just recognizing that you need to give yourself some, some time and space is important because you're going to want to um, look for value growth strategies and be thinking about these transition options. So we often start with an assessment, and this assessment takes a look at various things. Um, I'd let you take, take a step back and kind of look at your, look at your business from a 30,000-foot view and we try to help you see things that maybe you're not seeing. Um, it's a way to understand what flaws might exist in the business. No one wants to call their baby ugly, right? Um, so we try to take a real objective point of view. And we also suggest, you know, in this assessment, it's objective, right? And so we look at various criteria to, to evaluate against. But I think more than anything, just having a transition mindset, being open to what, transition could mean for you. You know, some people feel like it's a very negative thing. Some people feel like it's more positive. They're excited about it. And then some people are kind of in the middle. And so understanding where you are in that spectrum and what's, what are three to, you know, over the next three to six months, write down three things. What are three things that you can do within the next three to six months to become more prepared for business transition? And maybe after listening to the rest of this episode, people will get a little more, you know, ideas about that. So one pitfall is that your organization needs you too much. That sounds maybe counterintuitive. Of course your organization needs you. You're valuable. Maybe you're the head, you know, lead person in the sales process. You're the face of the company. You know how certain things work or you are the one that can only do this or that in the business. You love working with, with customers and you're passionate about it. It's your DNA. It's your identity. But if there are reasons that the business cannot be transferable because of your role and the value you create in the business, then inherently the new owner, if there's a new owner or if there's a next generation, they're going to struggle. They'll perceive risk in that transition. And if, especially if you're thinking about selling, imagine you're a new buyer and then the owner is going to leave and maybe those contracts or relationships don't transfer. Maybe, and so there's revenue risk. And then maybe the team is so wedded to the owner, you know, the team doesn't know how to do things. They always go back to the owner for problem solving or how to do something. And they themselves are, can't, 
can't manage certain things on their own, well, that, that creates operational risk. So customer risk, operational risk, what are the things that the owner, what are the things that you can teach or delegate or document so that the organization can thrive without you? So again, in terms of an action plan, what are three things that you can do within the next three to six months to make your business less dependent on you? And I gave you, again, some of those ideas, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But I'll just, Definitely. I'll just pause there, Denise. I mean, okay. yeah, thoughts. And I, I actually have a question. Somebody just sent me a note. She said, okay, I'm listening. I'm not entirely sure that, I'm, that I understand, like if, if she says, if I'm the face of the business, and she is, am I the product? How do I sell that? <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Let's think about Stephen Covey. Let's think about Stephen yeah. Covey. Name of his business was Stephen Covey, right? He wrote the books, and he was the face. And I had the pleasure of seeing him speak in person. He was so dynamic. You know, obviously, he has passed away. So what has happened with the Stephen Covey business? Well, what he created was content and he created a process and an organization to deliver that content. So he himself did not need to deliver it. I think it may be his son might, might run the company. I don't know for sure. I what think Stephen Kyle Covey Wilson did is he might have something philosophy. to do with it. Somebody bought it or took it over or is running it. And I there want to say go. Kyle Perfect. Wilson, but I'm not sure. Okay. Well, let, let's say, let's say a third party bought it. This is a great example then. And I, and I'll research it and try to figure it out too. Um, so let's say a third party bought the company. What made that company be able to thrive and be sustainable without Stephen Covey in the business? They probably created lots of content, right? As we're talking about, he had books and he had videos and he had educational platforms. Did he himself need to deliver all those classes? No, he didn't. Did you know the organization engine of getting people to attend, getting people to buy the books? They created a flywheel so that the organization again could thrive without him. So for the um, individual who's sending in the, the the question, thank you so much. Really appreciate our listeners doing that. And you know to help you, another example would be there was a creative agency that I went to talk to about this business assessment they took, and she said one of the most startling things she learned in this assessment was that she was impeding the value of the business. Now, she's a photographer. She's a graphic designer. She said, I thought I was the secret sauce, but now I understand I could be holding my business back over time. And I said, you're right. And that was a hard thing for her to really digest. So if you are the face of the company and the business is really so ingrained with what you do for it, it's okay. I mean, you might not have a transferable business. Not everybody does. That's okay. It might not be able to be transferred. But if you think about it and maybe break it down into its core components, maybe it is. But what would you need to do differently to make it transferable? Again, whether it's processes, whether it's people, whether it's a brand or other assets or intellectual property that you've created, what is it with about the business that could be transferable. And those assets, if you think about them as components of your business, could be sold individually, right? If you think about the assets of your business, what do you have? Well, you might have, again, depends on the company, but hopefully that's helping our, our audience understand what I mean by that a little bit more. I'll give you another example. Uh, engineering company, owner, founder, 
excellent engineer, needed to fly out to the Hawaii Islands, Hawaiian Islands, to repair, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was something for SpaceX, right, with, with Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. And the owner of this engineering company needed to fly out to do it. No one else in his company knew how to do that. Okay, well, that's super cool and exciting, and he went to Hawaii and all of that, but it, is that a scalable business model? No. Is it a transferable business model? No. He cannot – could he teach it to other people? Maybe. Um, so he himself doing that service, while it's highly customized and I'm sure the client was very happy, it isn't necessarily something that will transfer unless they make it so. Okay, and that makes sense. And I just correct, um, need to correct myself. We were talking about Stephen Covey. I just, my my mind went completely blank not too long ago, and he will be coming back. His son, Stephen M. R. Covey, was, was here. And, of course, it's Covey, you know, the Covey. I don't know what happened. Are you still there? I'm here. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah. Technology. I'm a nerd. I love technology. Some days I just want to bite a cat's tail. What I was trying to say before we got disconnected, or I got disconnected, is that we were talking about Stephen Covey, and I I need to make an apology here. I mean, I com- I was thinking of somebody else. Um, it was Stephen Covey, right? That we were talking about. Yeah, his son. His son took over the business, right? Right. Stephen M. R. Right. Uh, Image. Yeah. He, anyway, yes, he, and he was my yeah. guest not too long ago, and he'll be my guest again, so I need to apologize to him, too. It's Monday. That's okay. But anyway, yeah, I'm sure but he'll Zig Ziglar <laughs> is another case in point. I mean, that company just goes from strength to strength, and he is no longer with us. Right, right, absolutely. So I think every company can be introspective. You know, an owner can be introspective and take a look at, what are the what are the valuable pieces of the business? Value to who, right? So value to the cost, the customer that they want to pay for what you do, product or service. That it's teachable. That what you do is literally you can teach it to others. You know, unlike the situation with space, the SpaceX engineering, right? That wasn't necessarily teachable. And then the uh, the scalable part of it. So teachable, scalable, repeatable, and valuable. And profitable, you know, all those pieces. And you can kind of think about your business in that way to maybe make some changes. That's a good place to start. So, Right. So even if you haven't started, it's probably not too late to start is what I'm hearing from you. Absolutely not. It, there are some people who I've talked to who when they launch their company, they are doing it thinking about, the end, right? If again, quoting Stephen Covey, begin with the end in mind. Some people create a business thinking about their exit. And that's most common in tech companies that are funded by venture capitalists. They do a really good job at that. They kind of already, when they're founding, founding the company, they think about who a potential acquirer might be. So they're, they're used to that. And so there's no reason why non-tech companies couldn't have that mindset. I'll, gi- I'll give you an example. One of the gentlemen on my show came on and talked about his company, and he was on a journey to really understand potential acquirers and understand who might want to buy his business. 
That journey took about, let's call it between six and 10 years. And what he did is he sought to understand the different types of categories, which we, which we have three of them, a strategic buyer, these are high level, and I'll talk about each of them, strategic buyers, financial buyers, and related buyers. And what he did is he, he focused on the strategic and the financial. And over that period of time, he, he was taking all kinds of feedback. You know, he was asking good questions to understand what was it about his business that was appealing to them and likewise not appealing. He wasn't afraid to hear that his baby was ugly. And he did. He did hear that in a variety of ways, and he was able to change some of the dynamics of the business, increase its value, and then he did have an exit. Now, he was not my client. I wish he was. Um, but, but being on my show, um, David Weibel's his name, he did a great job articulating, thinking about who might want to buy your business and how understanding what motivations they have and what value drivers are most important to them. He had the time and, you know, with his team, had the ability to make some changes. One of the key changes that he made was creating a more – they were project-based revenue. Many, many companies have project-based revenue, which is we don't really know year to year who our projects are going to be. Maybe we have some ongoing clients that are on a retainer agreement. Great. That's more recurring revenue. A retainer agreement where you get a, a predictable sum each month is, is great because you have a more predictable – sense of your cash flow. If you're on pure project-based revenue year to year, you don't really know what's coming in the door. You got you to gotta go get it and build that pipeline. And having more subscription, you know, think Netflix and, and business models like that, more predictable, that those businesses tend to be viewed as less risky. And having a higher percent of your revenue be um, recurring R-E-C-U-R-R, not reoccurring. In contrast, reoccurring might happen, but you don't really know. It's not really guaranteed the way a, a contracted agreement would be. So recurring revenue and subscription models are, are really desirable. And so that's what he did. He ended up, he couldn't, he didn't get 100% of his revenue to be recurring, but I think he got about 40% and versus zero. And that was a big, big change. And at the end of the day, that was probably the biggest uh, impact that was made to the value of his company and he had a successful exit. That was something he worked on for quite a while. That was not overnight. Back to your question of when do you start and when can you get, you know, Hey, you can start yesterday. You know, yesterday was the best time. The second best time is today. And the third best time is tomorrow. So there really is no reason why you couldn't start again, because it's going to help you run a more profitable, enjoyable business that one day is going to, you'll be rewarded for all your hard work. And see, that makes sense, but it is scary. I mean, it really is, and especially if you have a business like you just described that you don't, you're just kind of convinced that you can't possibly sell it. You're the face of it. You're the content creator. You're doing pretty much everything. You do have subscriptions or you're creating subscriptions, but you do have some retainers and you do have some projects. But how in the world, and this is me asking, how do you convince a bank that you're trustworthy? Because... You're right. I mean, you can go up and down in terms of, you know, income, and but you have to prove to them that these clients are going to stay with you, and I don't see how that's doable, or is it? Well, I mean, you've asked a number of things in there, one of which is having know, a relationship sorry. with the bank. No, that's My okay. I've had different people talk to me about that. 
I've, different people have talked to me about lenders, and it's amazing, I think, the relationships you can build with local banks, community banks. I'm going to give them a shout-out. I think that your community bank is a great place to build those relationships. There have been stories. Uh, there's a great interview on my show where the founder and his wife, or the, I spoke with the wife, I should say the, the wife and her husband, um, they ended up getting an initial bank loan from I think it was in uh, I think it was in Wyoming and their business was glamping a glamping business and just getting it off the ground you know was really was challenging and there that bank really took a really took a a liking to their plan and to them and what they wanted to do and it was a success story and others have said so too you know I have a client in Texas and he his local bank has extended lines of credit and so how do you get a bank to trust you, convince a bank you're trustworthy? Well, that's, that depends, right? Obviously, you want to be trustworthy. But I think what they really want is they want to look at the numbers. So if you have a history of running another company or if you're, you know, you've got your financial history of your business, you know, lenders have formulas of what they need to see in terms of um, the, the ratio, right, for, for, lend, for making lending decisions how much debt you're going to take on versus much um, cash flow is in the business. And, and again, they, they have their own ratios of what that should look like, whether it's two and a half times, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's certainly part of it. I think it could be both sides of that. And again, maybe talking to the smaller banks that get to know you and believe in what you're trying to do. And then if you wanted to seek outside capital investment, you know, there's venture capitalists, there's private equity investors, there's friends and family, there's angel investor groups. So there's capital out there to be deployed. And it just depends on, you know, what your goals are. And that I'm I'm thinking is part of, okay, if you're going to be looking at your business, how do I sell it? You know, I've got this business, it's great, it's great for me, it supplies everything I need, but I eventually want to sell it and I don't know where to start. So maybe talking to, I'm just guessing, maybe talking to your local bank about funding what you need to put some of these things in play might be a good good idea. Yeah, and you might not need funding either. You know, I think a great really? place to start is to talk to somebody like me because there's yeah. a lot of things you could do in your business. Which one are you going to do first? And it's not necessarily that you need to take out lines of credit or bank loans to make some of these changes. If you're going to document the processes that you use in your business, you don't need a bank loan for that. You just need time and resources. Um, so again, it just, it just depends. Um, but I think also just considering, you know, who would want to buy your business and uh, John Warlow, he's the author of Built to Sell and founder of the value builder system. I'm a certified value builder advisor and John's been on the show he's a great guy and, and, and so, so savvy about many of these things. He's interviewed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people who sold their company. One of the things he talks about is a five and 20 rule. And it's a general rule that basically suggests that a likely buyer for your business is between five and 20 times your size of revenue. So if your business is doing 5 million in top line revenue and you have a five and 20 kind of mindset, then a potential acquirer would have at least 25 million in revenue, you know, 5x or 100 million would be 20x. And why that helps is because you can rule certain companies out. 
if an acquirer is not at least five times as you, they might face more issues and risks on both sides of the deal. So if after the deal, the companies face challenges and this acquisition fails over time, it's going to have much more of an impact on the financials and both businesses likely are not going to survive. In a large company, a failed acquisition write-off might have a smaller impact on the acquirer's P&L. Um, the other reason why we see the 5 and 20 rule holding is because a company that's much, much, much bigger than you, let's say it's a billion-dollar company, and if you're a you know, $5 million company, how do you get their attention? This happened to me with a potential client that I'm working on the sell side, sell side, and they said, we're sorry, you're just too small. And so that was the first time I heard that, and so I can, I can say from my own experience, this does, this does uh, happen. And the reason is because they have a team of corporate development people that are, you know, hunting for the right deal and it takes a lot of time. And these smaller deals are just maybe, you know, the fish is too small. So they want to go catch a bigger fish. And that, and that's the other reason, just getting the attention. But can there be exceptions? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. You know, Goliath can acquire David for sure. Um, And I think the main question is, is, you know, what's special about your company? What is, what is something that maybe a billion-dollar company, if we want to set our sights on that type of publicly traded entity, you know, what can they not replicate, and do you provide that? And what's the path of least resistance that that buyer is going to want to achieve that goal, and they're, they're, then that likelihood of them buying you, you know, is slim, but it could also go up because, again, you have very specific niche or you have a customer acquisition strategy that really works and it fills a need they have you know, their intellectual property, it can be a variety of reasons. But, you know, again, this 5 and 20 rule, I think, is, is valuable as you think about who a potential acquirer might be. And from a back to the kind of the, some of the language I was using earlier, like uh, who are these buyers? Um, a strategic buyer is a company, you know, plain and simple, it's a company. A financial buyer is a private equity group or an acquisition entrepreneur that has uh, sort, you know, access to capital. And most commonly, strategic buyers, uh, they can be competitors. They can be, they can be a vendor you know, or a supplier of yours. They can be a, a customer. You know, they could be anywhere upstream, downstream to your business. And typically, they're in the same industry as you. So they're looking for, you know, it's related. There's, there's some synergy with your business because they're going to look to integrate. You know, they're going to look to put these things together. In contrast, a, a financial buyer tends to look for deals that are standalone. They'll call that an anchor or platform deal, where it's more of a standalone acquisition and it's operating on its own. And the other, though, the other example is more of a hybrid with a, with a private equity group. They might do what they call tuck-ins or add-ons, and those can be smaller and then that looks a little bit more like the characteristics of strategics because there's a strategic integration going to happen and they're looking to integrate the back, you know, back office parts of the business and so on. And the related parties, uh, if those are contemplated, a related party can be family, it can be management, people on the inside who know the business or who are already associated with the business. And an ESOP is a financial transaction uh, it's a extreme tax benefits. Uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but um, I kind of put them in two categories where it's financial for sure um, because you're borrowing to essentially acquire the company and then um, offer, offer shares of um, a defined benefit to employees. 
but then also there's they're related right because the parties have a vested interest in having this company succeed okay so let's go back if you don't mind to pitfalls i'm guessing i'm just maybe i'm going to make an assumption that you have a list kind of from one to ten where people you know really fall into these pitfalls so you can kind of identify them quickly what let's just what are the top three pitfalls that you're seeing um, top three pitfalls, I mean, number one is just people not, not making um, the time to understand and document what, what their overall plan looks like or, or what their timeline looks like or what their goals are. So a lot of times that's where I start with people. I start on the business side, which is understanding what some of the risks are and the strengths are. And then also I have an assessment for people to talk about their overall goals for a transition, you know, and that includes timeline, that includes potential exit channels. It's kind of very high level, if you will, but it gets the wheels turning and it opens up a dialogue of honesty and that self-exploration of truly what's important and why. And, you know, for this client that I mentioned that unfortunately passed away, my notes with him were so deep, I could have written a eulogy based on what he told me about himself and his company and what was important to him. You know, that, that exploration many people don't do, and they find it very valuable. Um, the other piece of it is, Denise, to understand what the business is worth. If you're working on your company and you don't know what it's worth to a third party, that's another great place to start because if we're working on, let's say, your financial future and what money you might need to fuel the way you want to live after you've left your company, we need to kind of have an idea of, you know, what that number is and then back into, well, what would you need to sell your company for? And is that enough? And so for many people, there is a gap. And that's the other reason when time's on your side, you can make that, you can make that difference. If you have other assets that contribute to the total picture of your net worth, your business is one of things, maybe you have real estate, you can't count your personal home because you need somewhere to live, but let's say commercial property or other things in your portfolio, so your total net worth is what we're looking at. What percent of your net worth, on average, I'll just ask you, Denise, you know, just to guess, for the average business owner in America uh, for total net worth, what would you guess is estimated that the business comprises of that total picture? What percent? do you think that would be on average? Off the top of my head, I'm going to say 50% or better. It's a good answer. It, the answer is higher. It's usually 70 to 80%. It could be Ooh, 90%. Ow. And Yeah, and so what are we trying to do in our, in our portfolio or financial portfolio? Everybody talks about diversification. If inherently your business comprises most of your net worth, you're not you're not you're not diversified, and that does present some risk, which is why some business owners think about it as just taking some chips off the table. You can recapitalize your business. You, there are investors like private equity firms and others that um, will help you recapitalize, and you could um, sell the majority stake in your business. You can sell a minority stake in your business, so we call those recaps. And that's, again, a way for you to take some chips off the table if you have – if you've been operating your business for 10 years or longer, um, 
this, there's a maturity there. You know, people can see the financial, the quality of your financials. They can see the trajectory that you've had. That's what goes into some of the criteria when, regardless of the type of buyer it is, they're going to look at, they're going to look at your financials. So the other kind of must do, you asked me for three and I already gave you three, but if I can tack on one more, it's making sure that you have really good quality financials. And if you use QuickBooks or another tool like that, that's fine. There's no problem with that. You just got to make sure it's accurate and consistent. As long as we can get financial reports when we need them and they're accurate, you know, and if they, you have other systems. I have a client where we're actively in the sale process and I was going through some financial reports he sent me and they didn't add up. And I pointed it out to him and now he's pointed out to his accounting firm and they're trying to figure it out. But that's the kind of stuff where it can bite you if you're just not on top of it. The other part is if you're an owner that has discretionary expenses running through the business, that's something else to consider. Maybe, A, you can decide to do that or not do that. I'm not going to you know, say you can't do it. Of course you can. But if you're not tracking what they are, we can't do any add backs in your financials. We can't, if you can't isolate them, um, then maybe start there. Just start tracking them. And maybe you can set up different accounts or separate credit cards. I have one client, that's what we're doing with him. It just makes it so much easier. I, have a, I had another potential client that he was afraid of what anyone would find in his financials. So that's a whole other story. And again, I'm not going to go there, but I think you, you can decide whether or not it makes sense for you. Just acknowledge that if you're buying toilet paper, you know, through your business and for your personal use, okay, maybe you're saving 30 cents on the dollar in that, in that expense because of, you know, the tax write-offs. However, if your business is worth 3x multiple of EBITDA, well, for every dollar you're not putting, keeping in the business, that's, that's $3 of value you're giving away. So that's the other cautionary tale with discretionary expenses. We need to be able to we need to be able to isolate what those are. You know, I have another client that for landscaping and some some things related to a, a boathouse he has, he ran those expenses through the company, but he could tell me what those were. So in doing the valuation, and I my firm we offer those through Stony Hill Advisors. We offer we offer valuations, so it's an excellent place to way to just lay out the last three years of financials. We use your tax returns. We'll talk about discretionary expenses and revenues that might not come back. So if there's another owner that takes over the business, would they expect to have that one big ad hoc job that came through two years ago? Well, no. Okay. So we can't really, you know, bank on that revenue. Let's make an adjustment. Likewise, you know, monies that come from the government or credits like PPP, we can't count on that again. So we have to take those out. So we do these adjustments and we come up with a key number to know. Um, we've talked about EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, depreciation, and taxes. We do an adjusted number on that. I'll talk about more, that more in a second. The other number is um, essentially an adjusted net operating income number, which is seller discretionary expenses, and SDE is the acronym. So SDE for businesses that are, let's say, under – under a million in revenue, quite often they sell on a multiple of SDE. For an estimation of EBITDA, we are adding back a manager's salary. So we're taking out all expenses related to the owners, and you know, assuming the owners are not in the company anymore, 
and that's the SDE, right? We're going to remove your health care and your salary and, and things and their expenses that a, a new owner would not have. But if there's going to be a new manager, we have to add that back in, and that's the EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA number. And so for other companies, you might more commonly, you know, especially for larger transactions, have an adjusted EBITDA times a multiple. So everything we've been talking about today, Denise, is a, kind of boils down to the math of why would a buyer have a higher or lower multiple for your business? And our work, my work with clients, is over time to work on the secret sauce and the reasons why that multiple would be higher. That's what we're trying to protect against and, and add value for. It's it's interesting. I was just going to ask you, you know, about discretionary expenses, and you explained it. Somebody had sent me a note and said, okay, I think I know what it is, but what is a discretionary um, expense? And then she started laughing. She said, oh, toilet paper, and she just cracked up. So I thought you would enjoy that. Yeah. Like, yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's an extreme example. I mean, but that has happened where people think, oh, I'll save on taxes. You know, I'll get some money. Well, sure, but, you know. Um, you know, other examples could be a, they're not a owner-related expense, but it could be a one-time expense for the business. Let's say you had to put on a new roof. Well, that was a one-time thing. The new buyer is not going to put on a roof, so you would do an ad back on that. Um, you know, other things that, again, we have to understand, but like could be vehicles, it could be, and, and, the, and the expenses associated with the owner's vehicle, whether it's leased or owned, it, you know, regardless, those can be can be, um, you know, specified. Understood. Let's go back to COVID and the pandemic because I, and we're talking about, you know, money. We're talking about money and where it is and where it went. I'm wondering if you haven't seen an awful lot of people struggling to get back to where they were in terms of the value of their business and, you know, how do they, how did this impact a lot? Some of them just closed down, which I think is, so sad um but is that still is COVID and the pandemic and the shutdowns just all the stuff that went on with that is that still directly impacting small business owners right now it's impacting some and i guess you know of the ones that have closed they wouldn't be coming my way so they're inherently i have a smaller you know i'm not gonna have a smaller sample size but of the companies i do talk to we, we, of course, take a look at the last four years of their financials, and we talk about the impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic on the business. I have one client that was deemed essential, and their business was not affected long-term. I have another client that had a shutdown but then was deemed essential, and so it ramped back up quickly. I have another client that... COVID, they didn't miss a beat, but they are subject to other headwinds in the economic, you know, what we're facing now. And so it really, it really varies, Denise. I mean, some businesses were bolstered by COVID-19. There was more demand for things related to residential homes. And so anything related to residential kind of went, went up. Um, they're in the retail sector, things were, were hampered and then the supply chain challenges. So supply chain logistics companies, you know, had a bit of a squeeze companies that are, were in manufacturing, 
that were deemed essential or food or, you know, consumer products uh, they, that were deemed essential. They, you know, they didn't, they didn't miss a beat generally. Um, so it, again, it really just, it varies. And I have another client that provides um, pool maintenance and services and, they didn't miss a beat either, right? Because people were home and they, of course, you're going to want your pools to look great. So, you know, it really is all over the show. It's all over the board. I would imagine. And, you know, when it first started happening, people were just in a huge panic and rightfully so. And a lot of people did shut down, but, you know, they, they either came back later or they did something different or, you know, just there's always a transitions, which is what we're talking about. We're, we're transitioning to something every single day as far as I'm concerned. But I think, and this is just me thinking out loud, it does, I have no data to support it, but I think that people are more comfortable with the changes that they had to make, and now they're saying, okay, I don't want this to happen again, so what can I put in place that will protect me in the long term? And what we're talking about here is I think, you know, being, you know, being part of that, you know, what can I, how can I sell it? What do I need to do now? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it did shock the system. It did give people uh, lots of things to be worried about. There, there's some business owners that are in their seventies, sixties that have been through multiple recessions, you know, nine 11, you know, 2008, 2009, you know, now here we are again facing some economic turmoil and here we are again and people are tired and people do want to leave their business. They are, many of them think about age and versus stage. So age of 65, I want to retire at 65. I hear that a lot. Some people it's more stage based, you know, I want to go do other things while I can enjoy it. I'm young enough to go do it. And or others say, I want to start another company. So it's really more what stage in life they are. And we advocate for that. You know, whatever, whatever your choice is, it will support it in terms of your timeline and your perspective. But that's why having these conversations also about your personal objectives matter. So that when you do have your transition that, that you're excited about, you're excited about it, you've got a path forward. So many times owners are not happy about a year after the sale because of these things that maybe something just didn't go according to what they were expecting. Maybe it was something with their community, their community of employees. So many times there's dynamics there that are, that are, they're not pleased with, or they themselves are feeling empty that they didn't have something else to go do. Right. So how many, how many, so many of us have relatives or our grandpas that, they're still going to the office at 80. I hear it all the time. Oh yeah, my grandpa, he's still going to the office. He likes checking in. It's their identity. They just don't have anything else that they want to go do. And it's important to think about your identity in terms of who you are, what you enjoy, who, what you mean to people. And that can point you in different directions, whether it's volunteering with an organization like SCORE. It's a great organization to help mentor business owners. There's other organizations. How do you want to spend your time? You want to go golfing. You want to go sailing. You want to, what is it that you're going to do to really enjoy your time outside of the company that you've built and be proud about its next chapter and maybe just want to be in the grand grandparent business. <laughs> you, know, you just want to spend time with your, with your family, whatever it is, you know, that's okay. And, and being, having feeling fulfillment is, is important. 
you know, and I think we talked a little bit about this the last time you were here, Lori. And I, I think the joke was, or I, you know, I made the observation, if you will, that when I was a kid or when I was a you know, younger adult, I would notice, and I noticed it in my own neighborhood, 2008, when everything went so badly wrong, that the older people who, it was a lake community, there were really nice homes, nice people, big businesses lived there basically, but many of them lost their businesses or they lost their retirement and they were lost. One man died. I mean, his heart was just so broken that he just gave up and died. And that was, I'm not making that up. I mean, he just all of a sudden failed. He was perfectly healthy. He was always walking around the lake, but his heart broke. It happened. It's sad. So he didn't have any planning. You know, he didn't plan what, you know, and he didn't like his wife. None of us did. (laughs) It's a terrible thing to say, but she was terrible. And, you know, his life after he was made redundant, if you will, was hell for him. It really was. It's yeah, he a terrible, terrible situation. He, it was. Yeah. It, it was, and I'm I'm just now remembering it because it was a while back, but I remember the whole neighborhood was saying, is he okay? You know, I mean, and he wasn't okay, but he had no plan. He didn't know, he didn't want to rock on, on the porch and look at the lake. He wanted to do what he had always done, and he had no plan. I think, I think, talking with you, that that's really what happened to him. He just had no plan. And he was just yeah. kind of tossed out there with with no rowboat. It was sad. It was yeah. very, very sad. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah, it is. So we've talked about exit planning. We've talked about transition pitfalls. Where else would you like? We've got about five more minutes. What else do people need to know? Oh, and you know what I'm hearing from you this time and last time is that people really need to hire professionals, you know, professional accounting company, professionals for your real estate professionals. Don't try to do it on your own is what I'm thinking. Yes, listen to your podcast, listen to this podcast, but then hire somebody like you who can walk you through all of these pitfalls and do the the examination for you and with you. Don't try to do it on your own is really what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. There's an acronym that I that a friend of mine has, has come up with um, called the boat, the business owner advisory team. I think that's a great visual too. You know, who's in your boat, who's helping you. And I have one client that he's been doing this for 20 years. He gets together with his business advisors once a year and he's in his sixties. He and his wife want to sell their real estate and sell the company. And when I was, you know, getting him the paperwork to kind of get on board as a client, he said, I, I need to review with my business advisors. And while it slowed us down a little bit, I was appreciative that, you know, he was doing that. Um, so that's just one example. Not everybody does that. Sometimes we're doing it touring, towards the end, like, you know, when you're, when you're ready to kind of have a, have a transition. But having, a, having your everyday business accountant is great. But if they don't have mergers and acquisitions experience, then – you know, what I like to do is I have a Rolodex and I make introductions and then, you know, I, I tend to suggest for my clients to work with a firm that is has experience in, in that area. It's really important, you know, why take chances on the on the tax side? You just wanna be you wanna be proactive and, and have good advice there. And then likewise on the on the legal side, a firm that has done mergers and acquisitions transactions before, um 
sometimes, you know, time kills deals, right? That's kind of a uh, rule of thumb here. And I'm, I'm motivated to help get deals done. But if a, if a lawyer who hasn't done this before is just putting every red line possible in this agreement, and then they're not really taking a step back going, oh, my goodness, this could kill the deal. Is that really in the best interest of their client? I mean, I had, I, I had one, I don't know, maybe he was just blowing smoke, but he couldn't get past the NDA. <laughs> I was like, really? You know, you're going to lawyer up for an NDA? Let's just come up with what you need in here. Let's move on. That's a red flag. It's a big red flag. Let's just say it that way, whether it's on the buy side or the sell side. If the other side's legal team is just throwing all kinds of barriers up in the very, very early stages of conversation, what we interpret that, we can interpret that to mean is, oh, my goodness, by the time we get to a purchase agreement, this is going to be a nightmare. And it could make, a, you know, may be a reason for why we don't want to continue those conversations. I'm not saying that happens in every case, but it can certainly happen. And I did some subtle coaching uh, in that situation, and they, they backed down. So, you know, that, that's the other reason to have experienced M&A attorneys. They get it. They want to help you get a deal done if it makes sense to do a deal. And they're not going to be uh, – and, they're, and they're, their interest is to protect their client, of course. Um, but they also know that there's business decisions to be made. So that's really, really important. So don't hire your divorce attorney for succession planning. No, don't do that. That popped into my head. I had to say it. Lori, where can, well, you've already shared everything I think you can share, and thank you. I'm losing my voice again. Where can people find you? I know you've got a podcast, so give us the, the information on that. Yeah, great, great place to start. Succession Stories podcast is available wherever you listen to your shows, and it's also on YouTube. Find me on LinkedIn, Lori Barkman, and my consulting firm is called small.big. It's small.big.com. If you want to learn more about me and more about my practice and exit value planning, and Stony Hill Advisors is the M&A firm. I'm a partner with them, and you can also find me on their website. I'm giving you lots of URLs here. The, the one shorthand, if there's one thing to remember and you want to find me, here it is, meetlauriebarkman.com. And L-A-U-R-I-E-B-A-R-K-M-A-N, meetlauriebarkman.com. You can schedule time with me. You can get me any which way on these other websites, too. And on LinkedIn, you can DM me. But if you're driving and you're just trying to remember, then probably meetlauriebarkman.com is the easiest. So thanks so much, Denise, for having me on. It's been so fun to talk to you again. I've really enjoyed it. And I had so many questions after the last one. And a lot of it is not going to pertain to me just yet, but I know there's a lot of people in this audience that are going, okay, more, give me more. So thank you for coming back. I really appreciate it. And what was the, the name? There was one podcast that you, you mentioned I wanted to go back and listen. David, David Weibel? Oh, Weibel, yeah. Okay, uh, I want to go listen to W-I-B-L-E. Yeah, he's, that was a great listen. He, he was a really good guest. Okay, great. I will be listening. Lori, thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking with you again. And I truly thank you for all the terrific tips and the advice that you shared with our audience. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes, Amazon, um, Spotify, anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Truthfully, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your success journey. 
Lori, thank you so much. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.